Welcome to the CI Podcast, an opportunity to open God's Word together, learn more about who Jesus is, and know how to follow Him in the world today. Welcome back to the CI Podcast. Hi, Jim. How are you doing? I'm doing very well, Judy. Good. Can't complain. How have the last few weeks been? Uh, My life trundles on without really very much... um, um, Drama, although the weather hasn't been great. I have to be. You were up in the North Coast. I was you? up and it rained the entire time. Yes. Yep. Staycations yes. aren't the best when you're in Northern Ireland. <laughs> but. No, but things have been well. Things have been good. Yeah, good. So last time we looked at the character of Paul in our series, looking at people in the Bible who have faced uncertainty. And this time we're looking at Ruth. So I guess we should just get started and get our I Bibles so. open. I have a much more sensible Bible with me this week. It's not a huge study Bible, but it is a very odd thing because it's a waterproof Bible. I was was given this by a couple I I, I officiated at their marriage, and they gave me, as a present, a waterproof Bible. Why would anybody, I suppose for baptisms it might be useful, I don't know. But anyway, so, uh, but I have a sensible Bible with me that we can can follow. Very appropriate for Northern Ireland. (laughs) Yes. Out yes. Wow. yes, it links beautifully with our <laughs> moans earlier about staycations. Yeah. Um, yeah, so do you want to read chapter one? And sure. so again, if people have a cup of coffee ready and we'll just sit down and enjoy this. We're going to look particularly at chapter one and chapter four. Okay, but if you want to lead off uh, and lead us through chapter one. Yep, sounds good. So Book of Ruth, chapter one, verse one. In the days when the judges ruled in Israel, a severe famine came upon the land. So a man from Bethlehem in Judah left his home and went to live in the country of Moab, taking his wife and two sons with him. The man's name was Emelech, and his wife was Naomi. Their two sons were Malon and Kelon. They were Ephrodites from Bethlehem in the land of Judah, and when they reached Moab, they settled there. Then Emelech died, and Naomi was left with her two sons. The two sons married Moabite women. One married a woman called Orpah, and the other woman named Ruth. About ten years later, both Melon and Kilon died. This left Naomi alone, without her two sons or her husband. Then Naomi heard in Moab that the Lord had blessed his people in Judah by giving them good crops again. Naomi and her daughters-in-law got ready to leave Moab to return to her homeland. With her two daughters-in-law, she set out from the place where she had been living, and they took the road that would lead them back to Judah. But on the way, Naomi said to her daughters-in-law, "'Go back to your mother's homes.' And may the Lord reward you for your kindness to your husbands and to me. May the Lord bless you with the security of another marriage. Then she kissed them goodbye, and they all broke down and wept. No, they said, we want to go with you to your people. But Naomi replied, why should you go on with me? Can I still give birth to other sons who would grow up to be your husbands? No, my daughters, return to your parents' homes, for I am too old to marry again. And even if it were possible, and I were to get married tonight and bear sons, then what? Would you wait for them to grow up and refuse to marry someone else? No, of course not, my daughters. Things are far more bitter for me than for you, because the Lord himself has raised his fist against me. And again they wept together, and Orpah kissed her mother-in-law goodbye. But Ruth clung tightly to Naomi. Look, Naomi said to her, your sister-in-law has gone back to her people and to her gods. You should do the same. But Ruth replied, don't ask me to leave you and turn back. Wherever you go, I will go. 
Wherever you live, I will live. Your people will be my people and your God will be my God. Wherever you die, I will die. And there I will be buried. May the Lord punish me severely if I allow anything but death to separate us. When Naomi saw that Ruth was determined to go with her, she said nothing more. So the two of them continued on their journey. And when they came to Bethlehem, the entire town was excited by their arrival. Is this really Naomi? the woman asked. Don't call me Naomi, she responded. Instead, call me Mara, for the Almighty has made my life very bitter. I went away full, but the Lord has brought me home empty. Why call me Naomi when the Lord has caused me to suffer? And the Almighty has sent such tragedy upon me. Naomi returned from Moab, accompanied by her daughter-in-law Ruth, the young Moabite woman. They arrived in Bethlehem in late spring at the beginning of the barley harvest. Brilliant story, isn't it? Very poignant. Yeah. So can you set the scene here, Jim? What is this historical context in which this story takes place? Yeah, that's an important way into understanding um, this as a piece of literature. And you'll notice that... um, the very first words you read, Judy, were um, that the Book of Ruth takes place with in the days when the judges ruled, there was a famine in the land. So those first seven words help us locate the events in, in Israel's history. So, you know, at first reading, this story is of ordinary villagers facing life's trials in an agricultural society. And it might seem pastoral and maybe even a bit serene, you know. But those first seven words let the secret out because the backdrop to this um portrait of pastoral life is probably, the, in fact, definitely the darkest period in Israel's history, that chaotic, turbulent period of history known as the Judges. Now, why does that matter? Well, um, because the story, it's a love story. Ruth is a love story. It's a story about a man and a woman. And it's, uh, so we have to think about the context of manhood and womanhood. And at this point in Israel's history, society becomes so corrupt and so chaotic that the very concepts of manhood and womanhood were threatened. Um, so let me just take a wee moment here and talk to you about uh, Judges, the previous book. Okay, I remember once having to preach through it, and, and at one point I had to insist that there was a crash organised um, because I wouldn't allow children uh, to be in the room. It is, some of the material is so dark. Because Judges records uh, the, the descent of Israel's society into near anarchy, and it ends with that fam- famous phrase, each person did that which was right in their own eyes, which is probably the best definition of postmodernism ever given. And um, if, if you know anything about Judges, you know it's structured as a, a series of seven cycles, but it's, those seven cycles are bracketed by a prologue and an epilogue. And the epilogue, which uh, starts in chapter 18, um, is of interest to us because uh, it focuses on Bethlehem. Okay, now <laughs> I simply will not discuss the contents of this last epilogue of Judges with you. It's a terrible story about gang rape and butchery, and but the relevant point is that those final chapters in Judges don't follow a straightforward chronology. In actual fact, they they record events, terrible events that took place quite early on in the period of Judges. So they would have been embedded in the minds of anyone who lived in Bethlehem. Uh, during the days of Ruth and Boaz. Okay, so we'll we'll draw a veil of decency over that background. So all we need to know is that Bethlehem was a society which had seen women treated with brutal disrespect. It must have been almost impossible for a godly woman to exist in such a terrible place. I mean, even in the book of Ruth, the reader gets a hint of the fear of violence against women. You get that in chapter 3, don't you? 
So perhaps very few godly women remained in the area, uh, which might explain why Boaz, as a spiritual man, never got married. So this book of the Bible is a story written on a small, intimate scale. It doesn't really deal with big national or political changes. It tells the story of two women, Ruth and her mother-in-law, Naomi. So let's get to know the main characters in the story a bit. First, what do we know about Naomi's husband, Imelech? You're right, there are no dramatic miracles here. It's, a, in many ways, a humdrum routine of rural life in 11th century BC Palestine. We meet ordinary characters and we find out about life's joys and sorrows and their daily concerns. Um, so it's very different from Judges, which deals with this broad canvas of international affairs. Now, names are very important in the Old Testament, and Elimelech means, uh, my God is king. I mean, it wasn't that they just sort of decided to call somebody Trevor in the Old Testament, okay? <laughs> so names were important. I mean, if you go back again to Judges, um, uh, Gideon uh, was, they tried to make Gideon king, and he says, I will not rule over you, nor will my son rule over you. The Lord will rule over you, okay? So he believed in a theocracy, but... Um, he wobbled in that idea because a few verses later in Judges 8, uh, we're told that his, his concubine bore him a son and he named him Abimelech, which means my father is king. Okay, so names are really important in the Old Testament. So Elimelech, I think, essentially became an agnostic. He demonstrated, uh, gave up his faith in the providence of God. He just didn't think that the principles in which Israel was supposed to run uh, worked anymore. So he got out of Bethlehem. Uh, Bethlehem literally means house of bread, uh, but there was a famine, so in Elimelech's mind, there was another useless empty phrase, like his own name. And he didn't just give up on the future. Um, I think he also made the willful choice to ignore history. You know, he decided that life was lived in the present, just a fairly routine humdrum affair. Life was lived according to the rhythms of the seasons, and he had chosen to forget the facts of the Exodus or the Jordan parting before his father's feet. So God wasn't king. Chaos or chance was king. There was no plan, no grand story. It was just the present. Yeah. Now, so that, that's a limit. Like, well, well, Judy, what do, what do you make of Naomi? What, what sort of a woman was she? So I think, interestingly, when you're saying that names are significant here, Naomi actually means pleasant one. Um, although she then becomes shaped by her difficulties, so much so that she changes her name to Mara, meaning bitter, um, and she does go through a lot. I mean, I think people often just write Naomi off as the famous Eeyore of the book. Um, but she goes through a lot of loss, a lot of pain. But not only that, as mother-in-law to Ruth, she could represent Israel as a nation in the way that Israel was supposed to be a light onto the Gentiles. And Naomi, in that way, is the door for Ruth's being included in the Messianic line. So she is significant. She's not just the Eeyore. You know, she has a very, very significant role. Yes, it's interesting, isn't it? Even though she was, she did become bitter, or she said she was bitter, she clearly did enough to give Ruth the right impression of the God of Israel, didn't she? Yeah. Yeah, I mean, she effectively is responsible for um, Ruth's conversion. And how would you describe Ruth the Moabitess, Jim? Yes, Ruth um, strikes me as a very strong, substantial woman. You know, I mean, she struggled and prevailed, um, but she she was a real authentic woman. Um, and so she's a great illustration of womanhood, I think, you know. I mean, in chapter two, when she goes out into the field to gather, you know, she doesn't flounce around in a beautiful cotton dress twirling a parasol, you know. <laughs> she sweated and toiled in the fierce heat of the Middle Eastern sun. Um, I mean, you can pick up so many lovely little thoughts about Ruth. Um, 
I remember pointing out to, to a young woman once that Ruth had a healthy appetite. You find that in chapter 2, verse 14. Now, that might seem like a completely arbitrary point, but we live in a society that has vandalized womanhood, reducing it to this plasticized, absurdly proportioned object. And as a consequence of the pressure placed on young women, eating disorders are now commonplace. So there, there are lots of things at a very simple level that you can pick out about Ruth's, Ruth as an, ex- an illustration of um, the beauty of true womanhood. Yeah, absolutely. And, and then there's her relationship with Naomi, um, which is a, a lovely thing to think about. I mean, young women need to have older women in their lives. Um, it's really interesting exercise to set chapters two and three together because um, they each have the same structure. They follow an identical set of movements. So each chapter begins with a conversation between Ruth and Naomi at their home. Uh, then Ruth goes out and meets Boaz, and then she returns home to analyze what has happened with Naomi. Now, so the action is in both chapters is framed by intelligent and thoughtful discourse. And that is authentic femininity. I mean, I mean that sincerely. Uh, it's it's a, a really interesting insight into the relationship that should exist between generations of women. Mm. But I mean, since everything I've said about Ruth so far has missed the point, doesn't it? I mean, <laughs> I mean, it's her character which shines out here, you know. Um, so she's respectful to, to Naomi. Uh, she's grateful when she's shown kindness. Um, but if we had taken time to dip into chapters two and three, the big thing that comes out is that she had a, an excellent reputation. Remember, she was in this tough environment right, that I've described earlier. She was a Moabites in lawless Bethlehem. And I have no doubt the rabble who gathered in the town tavern subjected her to racial abuse or lewd comments. But no one could say a bad word about her. Her conversion to faith, her loyalty to Naomi, her courage in coming to a strange land. Boaz mentions all those qualities because they've been talked about in the town. So I think Ruth is a brilliant illustration of womanhood in a society that adores the plastic non-entities who parade themselves on Love Island, uh, something I know nothing about. I was going to ask. You watched Jim. I don't even have a TV, so I can't, I can't possibly know. But Ruth presents a, a better picture of womanhood, I think. Mm-hmm. Now, it's quite interesting. I mean, because Orpah's a, you know, an interesting character. What, what did you make of Orpah? Um, she returned to her own culture. Ruth did not. What do you reckon was the key difference, uh, Judy, uh, between those two women? I think it's interesting to see Orpah's decision versus Ruth's. I mean, Ruth shows incredible loyalty to Naomi, where Orpah shows more concern for her own life and well-being. And I mean, looking at the decision they had to make, it looked like a very bleak future for all three women. Um, so you kind of understand Orpah thinking, well, if I've got any chance of having a good future, I should go back and get married again. Um So she's looking out for her own affairs and her own interests. But Ruth is so much more concerned with being there for Naomi and being loyal to her. Also that Ruth follows through on her word. Both women initially say that they will go with Naomi back to Israel. But Ruth is the only one that really does follow through with that. And not only that, she also says, your God will be my God. And I think that's the biggest difference, her her conversion then to the God of Israel. Yes, I think that's, that's spot on. When the two women return to Bethlehem, Naomi asks the town people to call her Mara. Why was that name significant? You've really uh, pointed out that Mara uh, means bitterness. Um, but let's just look back. These names, again, are hugely important because Mara actually refers to a location in the desert um, in which the children of Israel wandered for 40 years. And you can, you can read about this place called Mara in Exodus 15. 
And they come across it only days after they have crossed the Red Sea, you know, that big spiritual high, you know, Miriam banging her tambourine, leading the women in praise, you know. Um, but then they come to this place called Mara, and Mara means bitterness. Um, now, at first sight, Mara looked like a nice place, you know, the water looked lovely, and the people were thirsty, and so were their animals. But they, the water was so bitter, it was undrinkable, right? I remember um, the late David Gooding pointing out to me once, he said, um, the book of Exodus is like a map, okay? It, it, it's not a Disney World map. Um, Mara would have been a deeply unpopular ride. Um, he, he didn't say that, I said that. <laughs> but the map of Scripture takes us somewhere, okay? And there's a destination. And so the first thing you have to remember, and I'm maybe thinking about people who are, who are going through bitter experiences at the moment, who are at Amara. The Israelites were closer to the promised land at Marah than they were when they were singing happy songs on the banks of the Red Sea. What God does is he, he, he puts them through this test and then he commands them to throw a piece of wood into the water and the water absorbs all the bitterness and uh, the water becomes sweet and refreshing to drink. Now, you well know, I'm sure you've heard the old, the old preachers as well much as I did, they used that idea of the piece of wood as to illustrate the work of the cross because Christ didn't just deal with the penalty and the power of sin at Calvary. He dealt with its bitterness, okay? And it's interesting that one of the last actions Jesus takes on the cross is to drink in bitterness, you know, sour wine. And his message is clear. He's done all that's needed to absorb the bitterness that may have polluted our lives, uh, and he can make living sweet again, mm. okay? So that's what Mara means. What do you think can cause us to feel empty in life, and how do we stop from becoming bitter? It's a very grown-up question, Judy. Um, life can deal us some pretty big disappointments, can't it? Um, I mean, I've sat beside couples who have told me that they're unable to have children. Um, others have raised children who are not as physically or mentally able as they had hoped they would be. Sometimes we can feel empty uh, if we don't meet a partner or we can, you know, if our partner is unfaithful to us. Um, even in church life. I mean, relationships between church members can descend into bitterness, leading to feuds that last for years, you know. Um, but I think even in the last study, you mentioned missionaries, I think, who had lost children or spouses, sometimes in their first weeks of service. Um, and when we feel empty like that, and that life is futile, and that it's not fruitful and productive, uh, that there's a real danger that we become bitter at that point you know and so in all sensitivity and tenderness I would say that my pastoral experience has taught me that bitterness is a waste of time uh, it can destroy your life it can stop your Christian service in its tracks I mean the New Testament warns about letting a root of bitterness growing up within us it says it can defile many and I've seen that happen and it's only the cross that can draw any bitterness out of us mm -hmm. right so perhaps someone listening to us has learned this truth, that life is tough. Well, God is tough, but God is love, and you see both truths at Calvary. So I think we've got, I've got a picture of these main characters. So I think if we now go to the end of the story, I pick up my waterproof Bible, and um, um, we'll read to chap chapter 4. I'm only going to read um, 13 to 21, the end, okay? So the context here is that um, Ruth and Boaz have fallen in love and uh, Ruth in a moment of real vulnerability um, has asked Boaz to marry her. 
and uh, of course he wants to do that but there's some tricky legal matters to be sorted out and he does that brilliantly and after they're sorted out we read in verse 15 uh, 13 rather so Boaz took Ruth and she became his wife and he went into her and the Lord gave her conception and she bore a son let me just break off and say as a complete aside that's a really interesting insight when it comes to the debate over abortion Um, the Lord gave her conception Uh, but anyway verse 14 then the woman said to Naomi blessed be the Lord who has not left you this day without a redeemer and may his name be renowned in Israel he shall be to you a restorer of life and a nourisher of your old age for your daughter-in-law who loves you who is more to you than seven sons has given birth to him so Naomi took the child and laid him on her lap and became his nurse and the women of the neighborhood gave him a name saying a son has been born to Naomi they named him Obed he was the father of Jesse the father of David. Now, these are the generations of Perez. Perez fathered Hezron, Hezron fathered Ram, Ram fathered Aminadab, Aminadab fathered Nashon, Nashon fathered Salmon, Salmon fathered Boaz, Boaz fathered Obed, Obed fathered Jesse, and Jesse fathered David. Wow. Yeah. It's amazing. End of the story. Why is the continuation of a family name so important in the Old Testament? It could be so difficult for people who don't have children to read passages like this. Yeah. <laughs> Sometimes ask, what's the big deal? Well, would it really have mattered, we say with our modern eyes, if Elimelech's name had been lost? Well, in, in the words of Deuteronomy, his name would have been blotted out. And that's how we should understand this. The fear that haunted these ancient Israelites is was an existential loss, okay? Will I just be blotted out? When I die, will it be as if I had never existed, as if I took my finger out of a, a bowl of water and after the ripples go away? It's as if I had never been. So that was the the horror of a name dying out. It was um, a moment of existential terror for them. Now, that seems very uh, insensitive to, to people who are single or childless. Um, but the truth is, Um, Singleness and childlessness was a very tough burden to bear in Judaism. It's only in Christianity that singleness is given its proper place in our thinking. Um, We sometimes forget that Christianity says a great deal about singleness and goes out of its way to describe it as a a God-designed pathway that he calls many people to follow. So if the concept we've just been talking about makes you feel uncomfortable well i always just advise people just thank the lord for the light we now have and that we don't live in old testament times yeah the story ends then with the newborn baby sitting in naomi's lap the townspeople say that the lord has given naomi a son why isn't ruth sitting center stage with her baby in her lap yes it's such an unexpected way to position the characters isn't it you know if you if you think about it as a stage play i mean if we've been reading this is the script of a play. The story of Ruth would have ended with Ruth sitting center stage with the baby on her lap. Um, so, I mean, you, this operates at lots of levels. At the simplest level, we realize that Ruth considered the interests of others before her own interests. So this young woman, remember, had loved Naomi with true, steadfast love. And even in her own joy, she chooses to lay her firstborn in Naomi's life so that Naomi could be surprised by joy. There is this um, beautiful symmetry to the book of Ruth as a piece of literature. In chapter 1 we find the emptying of Naomi and then in chapter 4 we find the filling of Naomi. Um, So Naomi is surprised by joy. Um, 
Now, it takes somebody with greatness of soul to think like that. Yeah, not to put herself uh, and her own joy first. She finds joy in giving joy to others. Um, it should remind us that on every occasion that we experience joy in our lives, uh, the divine joy giver is standing quietly in the background, happy to have made us happy. So, as I say, chapter 1 and chapter 4 are mirrors of each other. Chapter 1, we had the emptying of Naomi. Chapter 4, we had the filling of Naomi. So, how do you think, Naomi, Judy, how do you think she was feeling about her life when we get to the end of the book? Yeah, this is a complete turnaround for Naomi. I mean, to go from misery, emptiness, bitterness to being restored through Boaz and Ruth. Um, I think it's very, very evident that the Lord's hand was over her life and she would be very assured of God's faithfulness to her. So I think that was a huge lesson for Naomi that um, just because a, a future looks bleak doesn't mean that God's not in it and not working in it. And such a joy, of course, for Naomi to receive what she did. Yeah, I mean, you made a really astute comment earlier when, when you said that, you know, even though Naomi, uh, in a sense, was bitter, she still held on to God enough for Ruth to come to understand the God of Israel. And that's a really powerful point. Um, I would say that in chapter one, Naomi was still prepared to hold on to her faith with what we might call grim loyalty. Yeah, <laughs> But all the hope and joy had drained out of her life. Right? She would do her duty. She wouldn't betray her calling. But she would say, let's have no trite talk about the restoration of joy or childish hopes about the future. And grief and disappointment can, can cause any believer to fall into a state like that. Okay. Now, I'm sure you've maybe met people like this. They, they'll share the occasional joke with you. But the joy and hope have simply drained out of their lives. There's a tiredness at the back of the eyes um, which betrays their real state of heart. Um, there's this curious phrase in the book of Jeremiah. He, he paints this word picture. He talks about a, a big water cistern, like a reservoir. Um, they were common in the Middle East and they were like domestic reservoirs. But Jeremiah paints a picture of a cistern that was useless because the lining of the walls had cracked. And so no matter how much water you poured in, it just drained away. Uh, what he's doing is he's creating a word picture to explain a broken heart. That's, that's literally what he's doing. No matter how much joy you pour in, the heart isn't capable of holding it. It just drains away. No matter what goes in, it all drains away. Okay. So then you remember the words of the Lord Jesus. And he began his public ministry and he said he came to bind up the brokenhearted. Um, Christ can repair a bereaved heart, bind it up so that it's once again capable of holding joy and hope. And so the story ends, as you say, with Naomi's heart full to the brim with joy and hope for the future. And she looks down at her little grandson, the child who bears the family name, and her heart must have been bursting with gratitude to God. Um, so just as we maybe bring this study to, towards a close, how do you think this little book teaches, what does it teach us about how we should view our own lives? I think Ruth's response to the events that unfold in this book is a powerful example of how we are to give allegiance to God even when we don't know what the future holds. Um, and when we surrender to him, God sometimes works in unexpected ways to show his power and reveal his love. But he always does. And it is that, that he's working behind the scenes all the time. He's always bringing about his bigger plan. And we get to be a part of that, even when we don't see it unfolding. So it's a reminder of things may look bleak, things may look uncertain, but we have a faithful God who never changes and who's always working to bring about his will and his plan of redemption for us, for his glory. 
Is there any significance in the way that this little book is sandwiched between the book of Judges and the books of First and Second Samuel? I think there is. In fact, I think it's one of the, the most interesting ways to, to reflect on the book. Um, I've talked a lot at the start about this dark, anarchic period in Israel's history called the Judges, and time and time again you get that little phrase, in those days Israel had no king. Israel had no king. And then on the other side of Ruth you get First and Second Samuel, which is of course telling the story of the rise of the great shepherd king, of King David, um, the, the prototype of the Messiah. Um, and so in many ways the best way to understand Ruth is to see her as a link in the chain and God's great plan uh, to bring about a, a, a humanity that is well governed um, by uh, the Lord Shepherd King, the Lord Jesus himself. And that is a really profound idea. Um, and it goes back to the little picture we discussed earlier that Ruth is not sitting centre stage in the final scene. Um, she's in the background. And she is um, deliberately seeing, positioning herself as a link in the chain between Naomi and Naomi's grandson, uh, who eventually became, uh, he was the grandfather of, of, of King David. Um, and she found meaning and significance in her life by locating herself in God's grand story. Um, and you find that, you, turn, you open the New Testament and you read the first chapter of the New Testament and you find in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus, Ruth. Right? So Orpah, remember, walked off the stage of history and was never heard of again. But Ruth, is um, her life had significance because she uh, cooperated in God's grand story, not trying to write her own novel, her own story. She didn't view her life as a piece of performative art. Um, she located herself in God's grand story. Now, that is practically uh, important um, to be a little morose for a moment. <laughs> you know, if I ask why are you a Christian, you know, when you lie on your deathbed and you ask yourself, why did you live the way you lived? Will it be because you simply didn't bother to examine the alternatives? You know, when Ruth lay on her deathbed and looked over her life, did she ask herself, was any of it real? You know, were, were all my choices and actions just ways of putting off the time until the lights go out? In the ultimate sense, was it anything more than a really good story that no one would ever read? Well, that little genealogy at the end of the book says that Ruth's life had significance because God wove it into his grand narrative. Her life story found real meaning and significance as a th not as a thing in itself, perhaps, but as part of God's grand story. Real life consists in being part of something bigger than me. This is a really, really important uh, lesson for your generation to, to get to grips with, Judy, because there's such a temptation to be narcissistic and to see the whole world as a stage and the rest of humanity to be your adoring audience. Yeah? Mm. So we have to make the choice to turn from that idolatrous thinking and turn to the true and living God. Um, even those of us who have had a wonderful spiritual heritage. So there were once two girls who had been raised in an idolatrous culture. One was called Orpah, the other was called Ruth. One girl made the wrong choice and her story has been lost forever. But Ruth the Moabites chose to be part of something bigger than herself. Even though her life had been desperately hard, she had found in the God of Israel the source of all that is real. And she trusted him through the darkest of times. I'm sure she prayed and wept when there was no food on the table. She saw past the social chaos of lawless Bethlehem and looked at the grand picture of God's plan to redeem the universe. And then, in the course of her life, she met a man who thought as she did. 
I guess she could have chosen a better looking, younger partner. But Deep called on to Deep. A virtuous woman in a moment of intense vulnerability proposed marriage to a noble man. And they built a home together. And they raised their children in the nurture and admonition of the Lord. I'm sure she must have watched Naomi die and probably Boaz too. But at the end of her life, she thought of all the joys and all the sorrows. She must have known that her life had mattered. Her choices and actions weren't just bubbles in the froth of a random universe. You know that little phrase you mentioned um, or alluded to in chapter 2. It so happened. yeah. That there is um, underneath the froth of apparent coincidences. There is the providential hand of God. And so she knew in her heart as she exhaled her last breath that it had mattered because she'd encountered reality in the God of Israel and had located her life in his grand story. So at the start of the book, we were saying that Ruth is drawn on a small scale that can be viewed much more strategically, can't it? What lesson does the book teach us in terms of God's overall strategy in saving humanity? Yeah, well, (laughs) the scholarly world is not very comfortable with lots of typology, but undoubtedly typology has a role to play. And here's the thing. Ruth is a Gentile, okay? So Ruth the Gentile gets converted. Um, She says, your God will be my God. She turns from her idols to serve the true and living God. And she gets converted to faith in the God of Israel. Then, notice in chapters 2 and 3, it is Ruth who discovers the kinsman redeemer and who has personal experience of his mercy and kindness. And it is this converted Gentile who introduces a Jew, Naomi, to the Jewish kinsman redeemer. Okay? Now, I think you know where I'm going with this. It's Ruth who introduces the idea of the kinsman redeemer, not Naomi. The Jewish people today are wandering far from God. Their faith is shaken, wandering among the Gentiles. They are Elimelech, aren't they? But Gentiles are discovering the Jewish Messiah. They're able to tell the Jewish people how wonderful their Jewish kinsman redeemer is. And as Boaz says, come the morning, I shall publicly own you before the universe and take you as my bride. So I think the book of Ruth can be seen in a cosmic sense as well. Yeah. Wonderful. Jim, thank you so much for your time today and unpacking the book of Ruth for us. Is there any other comments you want to make? No, I just think she is such a, an inspirational and important figure, particularly for young women um, to study the book together. I would encourage people to do that um, and read it and see in Ruth a picture of true biblical womanhood. Yeah. Brilliant. Thanks for tuning in to the CI podcast. Join us next time as Jim and I continue our conversation on characters in the Bible who have faced uncertainty. For now, stay safe and have a great rest of your day.